0: Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, I sit down with director and actor Lizzie Albert to talk about being a character on stage and in life, how the audience performs in theater, and what plays and roles tell us about ourselves. Enjoy. full Sunday morning. It is absolutely gorgeous out.
1: I haven't been out yet, but I trust you and look forward to being out
0: there. <laughs> well, I noticed you guys, you guys just uh, finished putting in a, a garden. Like the flowers look phenomenal.
1: Yeah, that's my roommate. Um, and she has been hard at work in the garden for the last several weeks, which I'm just benefiting from by admiring it when I come home. <laughs> um, but I'm definitely looking forward to getting some outside time.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit to start off about what got you into acting in the first place. I know that that's a long, long time ago in, in, uh, a galaxy, a galaxy far, 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 away. far away. Well, not really. Well, like, no. Six miles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, in some ways I don't really know. I was actually talking about this with my mom and my sister the other day at, um, at brunch, we were meeting my mom's new boyfriend, oh, <laughs> and fun. he asked me that same question, and I was like, uh, I really still don't have a good answer to this question. <laughs> um, I was a pretty shy little kid, um, but I also I like took ballet, like 90% of small white girls in America, and my favorite part was always the recital, and I always wanted to like put on a play with... My friends. That was like the the game that I thought was the most fun. And so finally, after being badgered for many years, I really wanted to enroll in this musical theater drama class um, at a place called Bethesda Academy of Performing Arts, which is now Imagination Stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was like a car ride away. And my mom did not want to drive me. So she was like, how about you go to this other acting class that's closer that you can walk to that's a Shakespeare class. Mm-hmm. So when I was mm, just about to turn 12, I enrolled in this Shakespeare for Kids program mm-hmm. in Tacoma Park, and uh, the rest was history. <laughs> <laughs> um, I And I I think that's where I really just fell in love with performing in a solid way, and um, I, I got... A lot of encouragement from the couple that ran the company and I also really sort of credit them and that environment with my growing a personality <laughs> and like <laughs> kind of becoming a little more interesting than the like super goody two-shoes shy little mousy girl that I had been up until age 12. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: And then at what point did you start to decide, at what point did you decide to make acting a career? Because like it's, I mean, there are plenty of kids who go through the acting, like have the acting bug when they're younger and go through all of that and then decide to stick and decide not to stick with it. Um,
1: yeah. You know, it, I feel like in some ways it was like that childhood dream, like I'm going to be an actress and I just sort of never grew out of it. Um <laughs> I went to college for theater. I applied to a bunch of programs, and I ended up at NYU, and in a a pretty uh, rigorous conservatory program where they really treated acting like this high art that you needed to take seriously and live up to, and it it gave me a a whole new sort of way to look at life and the world because... Mm -hmm. The philosophy that they taught was that everything will serve you. You know, you're as an actor, you're reflecting something true about the world back to the audience, and in order to do that, you need to take in the world <laughs> um, so that you you have material, and not just material, but so that you have a, a, a comprehension and understanding. So that made me. It really just awakened my curiosity and my openness, I think, in a way that nothing else had. And so I went through that training and came out feeling really a sense of, um, like mission, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sounds so like (laughs) hoity-toity. Um, but, but just a sense of like, there's, there's something of real value Mm -hmm. that, Theater can provide, um, sure. and then, as I've been sort of making my way in the world through my twenties, it's it's definitely hard because I'm I'm making money in one place and I'm doing theater in another place, mm-hmm. and, um, but I feel like it's so it's been so clear to me for so long that theater is really the place where I feel the most whole and like my, my whole self is being used. And so it doesn't, even though it would make financial sense to give that up or let that be like a hobby and, um, and have a lucrative day career and have my nights and weekends free. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't make like emotional sense to me because then I'm like, what am I doing with
0: my life mm-hmm. I'm, I'm i'm gonna i'm gonna hit it on the nose a little bit more than i probably should but this transitions nicely into the way we play characters in our own lives and mm. the extent to which you know there's something about being honest with yourself versus playing the character of the person like playing the character of the nine to five
1: yeah well that's something uh, that that i that's mm. <laughs> words are hard <laughs> sometimes um that's exactly, I think, the realization that I had. I mean, ironically, am most myself at the theater. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I realized at some point, I was like, I feel like everywhere else is sort of where I'm acting. Like I'm acting like an administrative assistant, um, you know, and I'm acting like a person who goes to the gym and I'm acting like, a young professional on a on a blind date or whatever um i'm acting like a waitress like <laughs> and it was really only when i was at rehearsal that i felt like i'm so i'm totally present and i'm not acting i'm just working in the in the best sense of work mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm i'm just doing right and like being right i think that's I will say, I think that's gotten a little bit better in the last couple of years because I've just learned to be a little more present, mm-hmm. but I, there's definitely still this quality of like the theater world is so, is so deep in for me that the people in my life that I, I can't really share that with, um, there's, it just feels like they're only seeing part of who I am. Right. Although that's probably true of the theater people too. They're not seeing every part of me either, but.
0: It sounds like being on stage though is a, is a, is a space that allows you to sort of be most yourself, right? To what extent do you feel like having that connection to your truest self and and who you really are is what allows you to bring other characters to life? I mean, because I think that it's easy, it's easy in social situations, uh, to, to fit in, to drop into roles, even when those roles aren't quote unquote comfortable, but are are sort of prescribed and, and are the things that we do, but to to play a character that isn't inherently a part of your your everyday experience but becomes that through practice and rehearsal and performance like it, how much do you feel like having that connection on the stage and being truest to that part of yourself helps to to bring that forward
1: I think that it one thing that can be really challenging about acting this is sort of a roundabout answer to your question mm-hmm. is for many people, and I include myself in this, I think allowing the sort of darkest and ugliest parts of a given character to be present and to come to the surface and to be exposed can be really hard. I've I've done shows with men who are like really kindly and they there's scenes that call for them to be cruel or whatever and they're they really shy away from that. And um, and I know that I sometimes will do that too. I, I'm a pretty conflict avoidant person in my life. And that might be a good life skill, but it's not a great skill for <laughs> telling a dramatic story. Right, right. Um, so I think in some ways I've tried to, when I'm experiencing a really difficult emotion in life um like grief or betrayal or rage or terror (laughs) whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there is a you know most of me is like taken up with feeling the feeling and and wanting it to go away and um but there's a little part of me that that says like you know just try to sit with this and and experiencing it because it's part of being a human and Mm. at some point you're maybe called upon to like bring this knowledge to telling a story. But I do think that there's definitely a connection between practicing being authentic in your life and then being able to bring that authenticity to the stage. And, and if the more you're sort of playing roles in life, the harder that can be to, to suddenly be a whole like unvarnished person Mm -hmm. in the theater. And so so that's something I'm sort of trying to work on. And like I said, I think it's it's getting a little bit better. But um, how to be less less clean and careful. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you sort of create who you are by changing what you do. Like if you want to be a person who runs every morning, you just run every morning and then you are that
0: person. Right.
1: <laughs> and I think that's really true. And it's like such a simple formulation. Um, but it's it can be like hard to arrive there sometimes. Um, You know, like you, you feel like you have to change who you are in order to do those things, but really it's the other way around.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things, one of the things that was valuable for me for like through through improv um, and that I don't, I don't know if you see this in, in, in acting was this is, this is just a character, like this is a character I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. Like this is like, it's like, okay, cool. I don't think that, I don't think that Bruno the person can do this. Like and and Bruno the person is afraid of doing this and is throwing up all sorts of reasons not to do it. But Bruno the guy who runs just does it. Like there's Bruno yeah. the guy who runs just just goes out and does this thing.
1: Yeah. 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 I love that. Maybe that's how I need to start <laughs> thinking about things. I did yeah, This is like this is this is embarrassing. Um, (laughs) you just grinned, (laughs) um, when I was younger, I used to create these characters in like my journal, um, that were sort of like the, this alternate version of myself that was whatever I wanted to be at the time, um like very disciplined or, you know, at, at <laughs> performing <laughs> art school
0: <laughs> or,
1: um, just, just having these interesting lives and like, and doing things that I just felt like I couldn't do. Although, you know, they weren't superheroes. Like they were just sort of, I mean, the dreams were not that big, mm-hmm. honestly, but it was a way of sort of acting out and like exploring what would it be like to be this person instead of who I am. And I, I really liked kind of transformation narratives, like the moment when she got her life together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so it's funny, like I, I haven't thought about that in a while, but I, that's, I think that's exactly what I was doing only sort of on the page instead of in three dimensions.
0: Yeah. Well, and I feel like one of the things that some really good theater does, and I'm, I'm struggling to think of like an actual titular example is show. And I, I think there's part of good character writing and, and character development too, is show rather than telling us that someone has changed. Mm-hmm. Like you show the process of evolution and, and, and th- show the inherent struggle in that. Um, cause I think a lot of, especially if you look at a lot of media now, like there's this sudden, and and we get this montage and then suddenly they're better. And it's like, yeah, but it's yeah. not that easy. It's never that easy.
1: Yeah. Um, if I can speak on my current project, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm directing The Tempest right mm-hmm. now. And one of the things that I think can be really difficult about that play is the central character is Prospero. And he's a um, a father and a, Magician who's been sort of cultivating his his magic powers, and there's a way in which you can read the play, and I think I often see the play where Prospero's just sort of this puppet master who has a plan. The plan unfolds. He talks about how he planned it all, and mm-hmm. then the play ends. <laughs> and um, but it's. I feel, you know, with certain exceptions, but I, I'm always more interested in a character-driven story. And I think that particularly your main character, you want to see some kind of evolution mm-hmm. over the course of the play or else what was it all for? And I think that there is a a journey for Prospero um, and an important set of decisions that he makes to embrace one side of himself and not another mm. it's, it's been an interesting process to sort of find that and work with the actor to to pull that out and highlight it because it's it's pretty subtle the way that it's written into the text he has like a big scene right at the beginning of the play and then he's got a big scene at the end and he sort of just Commenting in between, right. um, he, he's not doing as much. But it's it was really important to me from the beginning that we were able to to show that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, when you're thinking when you're thinking about directing the show that way, and when you're thinking about casting um, someone who can sort of help to bring that nuance out what sort of things like what sort of things do you feel like really lend to that portrayal like to 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 help show that evolution rather than just sort of give you the and suddenly it was done (laughs) right
1: well I think that in this case I sort of know I sort of found in some ways the the those the experience doesn't always happen in order so There was this moment in the fifth act that I knew was really important and was a turning point, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until, um, a rehearsal pretty recently that I, I really zeroed in on why and how it happens there. And I felt like Prospero had to be facing this choice, um, at that moment in the play. So then it was sort of a matter of going back and saying like, where, where do we see the two sides of you? early on so that we can set up this these these two parts of your personality and see which side is winning and which side is losing mm-hmm. um, so that by the time it's it comes time to make that choice the audience feels aware of that in some ways like like i said it feels a little bit backwards like we're i'm i'm kind of starting with the <laughs> the, the climax and then going back and saying how do we get there mm-hmm. but I also think sometimes that's just how it works. Um, And I didn't actually do the casting for this play. The the theater did the casting. Um, But I have cast things before. And I think looking for people who have some range and who can do something other than their first instinct. Like sometimes I was talking with a friend of mine who I directed in a play a couple of years ago. And she reminded me, I had forgotten this, but she said she, she did a scene in the callbacks and, um, with another actor. And at the end of it, I said, that was great. Can you go back and do the complete opposite of that? Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, oh my God, I said that, but she was like, no, it's great. I, you know, that was clear and easy to do. And I think, oftentimes just looking for, for people who can play something unexpected and who can play something that's not the obvious choice. Like I'll sometimes ask them in an audition to do something that's to make a choice that's like not really right for that moment in the script, but it it might be, it might show me something that I need to see later in the play. Um, Mm. and if they have the sort of flexibility and, and emotional suppleness to do that, then I'm more inclined to cast them.
0: I really like that word. That, that phrase emotional suppleness yeah um that's that wow okay i like that a lot <laughs> just because i feel like you're welcome <laughs> thank you thank you um i feel like it 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 speaks to a lot of what we're sort of circling around in terms of uh the ways like the way the ways that character the ways characters come forward in plays and the way the way uh the way strong the way strong character actors can bring those characters forward is that that sort of flexibility to, to really inhabit that space and, and, and shape your emotional space so that you can be there. It seems like this weird state of, of, of dual awareness, like knowing, knowing who you are directing yourself as a character into this space. And I I know that some of that's the work of the work of the work of the director and, 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 and sort of creating that that structure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is. It, you know, I feel like I'm getting so inside baseball about mm-hmm. theater <laughs> right now. But, um, I, yeah, I mean, it it's a very interesting experience to be an actor because you're 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 usually operating on multiple levels. Like, I think when I was first in college, I thought, you know, I, I sort of f- for a while understood the goal to be like. To be so immersed in the reality of the character that you, you thought you were really there. And I, I, fortunately, had a teacher say, "Like, you're no, you're not having a psychotic break. Like, you know, you're in the theater. Mm-hmm. You know where you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but there is, there are these levels of awareness of like, I'm, I'm playing the character. I'm responding to the circumstances of the play." And the other actors on stage, um, but also I'm navigating the stage, and if a prop gets dropped, I'm gonna figure out how to take it off, and I'm I'm allowing the audience to influence what's happening, um, mm-hmm. and I'm modulating my volume to the size of the space, and there's you know there's all these sort of technical things that hopefully don't occupy a huge amount of your attention, but if you're not attuned to that, then you're not, your skills are not probably where they should be. Right. And then hopefully there's not the third level that I've sometimes been guilty of, of doing all those things and also thinking, like, what am I going to eat for dinner after the show? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think there's there's that. And I think one of the things that can be really challenging but also really rewarding about live performance is allowing the audience to be a part of the experience. And that means like sensing their energy and, you know, even something as simple as like riding a laugh um, mm-hmm. is just, it's, it's permitting this give and take between the actors and the audience that um, can be surprisingly challenging, especially I think for someone like me who part of the appeal of theater and it's is that it's the opposite of improv. It's scripted and I know where to go and what to say and what to do and what to wear. And I remember doing a show pretty in my early twenties where it was like a wonderful script and director and other actors and I loved the rehearsal process and like the first time we did it in front of an audience, I was like annoyed I was like why are these people here ruining this perfect like art that I we have created <laughs> and um, of course that's ridiculous because there's no point in having theater without an audience they're they're the crucial final piece of the puzzle right. but it's it's pretty vulnerable like to look out at them and to to talk to them and to open yourself to the fact that maybe some of them are bored or sleeping or hate you or whatever (laughs) um and but letting them in I mean I just think that's so powerful for an audience and that's the thing that really can set live performance apart from movies and tv and all the on-demand entertainment that you can get in your own home Mm -hmm. um but but that those things will remain unchanged whether you're there or not and theater only exists in the moment with the audience Mm
0: -hmm it has that inherent like there's there's the inherent relationship between the the performers on stage and, and the people who are watching
1: yeah and those people i i think that's why the people who love theater not counting people inside the industry but like mm-hmm. those dedicated civilian audiences who subscribe and come and love it and give up their nights to to buy tickets and watch the theater i think that's a big part of it is that they they feel part of the experience, right?
0: Do you find yourself bringing those tools, like the the like reading the audience and and sort of and the capacity to sort of step outside of the moment a little bit and and have the background uh, situational awareness running, uh, playing into your day to day. Like, do you do you feel like it's a it's a useful thing at work, or does it does it ever get hindersome at all?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I think you know. I sort of hate to say this because I feel like sometimes people say this and then everyone around them is like shaking their head like, you're so wrong. But <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. I feel like I've always like had pretty sensitive antennae to like the emotional temperature of the room and to the people around me. And I, I sometimes wonder if it has to do, I mean, I, I might have been that way anyway, but I also, my parents divorced when I was very small and I sometimes wonder how much of it comes from that being hyper aware of everyone else in the room and trying to modulate that but I do think that being perceptive and having a sense of what other people's emotional state is is something that I definitely experience in my day-to-day life and in fact have learned over the last few years to have more boundaries about when I was younger it could be a struggle because it was sort of like a Radiostatic, uh, in a way like I I would just I had trouble sometimes in large groups because I would feel like overly responsible for how everybody was feeling and and I think now I've learned how to separate a little more like here's what I'm responsible for and here's right. what I'm not but I think in general it's a it's a skill that I I do value because it, it can be helpful In talking to people who have a lot of other skills that I don't have, but they're not as skilled as reading people, I can say, like, here's what I think you meant. Like, here's what I think is going on here. Here's why I don't think you have to worry. I I feel like many people assume that other people are more judgmental or are angrier at them than oftentimes they are. Right. And I feel like often... That's just not the case. Like people just are not as interested in you as you think that they, they are.
0: Right. <laughs> people are people are generally set up in their own bubbles, and if they're paying attention, they're paying attention. But yeah, o- oftentimes they're paying attention to an ends. And this is not this is not a blanket statement about everyone or anyone outside of any individual circumstance. It's a whole lot easier to get someone to engage in a conversation when they think they have something to take away from it, whether it's like. Oh, I'm, you know, working on trying to achieve a goal with you or, you know, this is something that will be fascinating to you, whether or not you care about my interest in it on a deeper level.
1: Yeah. And just people are much likelier to be upset about something in their own life than Mm -hmm. something that you maybe subtly did to them. Right. (laughs) Like over the the water cooler. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Like in my experience, it's rarely when I find that someone's frustrated with me about a thing. Not, not always but rarely is it about the thing that I did and more often it's about how that thing points back to whatever's actually bothering them Mm. like if you're if you're at work and someone's like pissed at you about a deadline that's that's looming but not missed it generally has more to do with how many other deadlines they have or that you know if they've missed a deadline recently on that project then there's this added weight and
1: yeah and not that people don't genuinely have conflict obviously but I think I just tend to feel like I know what I did (laughs) You know, like if I'm like, is this person mad at me? I try to think back to our interactions and be like, is there anything that could reasonably be cause for them to be upset? Mm -hmm. And if I don't think the answer is yes, then I'm like, either they're not upset with me. There's just something else going on. Or they're upset with me about something that is so irrational that they're going to have to tell me what it is. Um, And like, I guess that's happened a couple of times where someone... I've thought everything was fine and and it's turned out that someone's been upset with me and then we handled it But for the most part people are people have their own things going on.
0: Yeah
1: I feel like we like diverged from the topic. No,
0: that's fine I'm gonna hook back and ask how do you play up those conflicts then when you have to have them on stage? Especially as someone who's similarly i'm like, I don't like getting into conflicts with people I think i'm less conflict averse than a lot of people, you know, Mm. but I don't like, you like to argue, though. I like to argue. I do. I do, I do that, like to argue. But that's
1: different it's, from a, that's, an actual conflict,
0: right? And especially when, like, when you're performing, sometimes those conflicts are really escalated in a way that I see people on stage, and there are moments where I'm like, "Man, I have the tools to not have even gotten to the place that these characters have found themselves." So how do you, like, do you find that? Do you find that that internal struggle comes into play, and then how do you work through it?
1: Yeah, I mean. I think one thing that I hate in, like, consuming media is when I feel like I'm seeing a character in a totally avoidable situation. Right. And I'm like, just just be mature.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that's its own problem. Mm-hmm. But I also think that ideally, your character is in a really high-stakes situation, which most of us are not in in our daily lives, I hope. Yeah. I just did... In November, this play, Anne of the Thousand Days, which you saw,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's about Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, and there's a lot of angry scenes, yep. <laughs> and and that was a little bit challenging for me in, in places, because I was like, you know, I don't want to just sort of like generate Angry acting. Like, I want to understand what's going on here Mm -hmm. that is causing this, but I also still have to get to this emotional place because it's just necessary in the text. And Mm -hmm. what helped me was to really look for what are the values that I or Anne, or ideally like the crossover between us, Mm -hmm. hold so deeply that that violating them would cause this level of fury. Mm -hmm. And I found that there were places where that really helped. Like you're violating my physical autonomy. You're breaking promises. You know, I went out on a limb for you and you've broken a promise to me and I don't, I don't trust you. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't believe you. And I, I don't know how to make you say something that I can trust. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the, Show and she's on trial for her life, and it's just this ridiculous, like Kafka esque show trial where everyone knows she's not guilty of what she's accused of, sure. including Henry, and she she's still going to be executed. And so, once you sort of like dive into those circumstances, mm-hmm. it's like, of course you're enraged. <laughs> like So I think I think some of it's it it, it has to do with finding and this this is sort of the heart of imaginative acting i think is like asking yourself what could cause me to have this reaction and then really sort of imaginatively exploring like what would that be like Mm -hmm. and then if you've permitted that emotion to live in you at other points in your life then it'll hopefully it'll be there Mm
0: -hmm. one of the things i walked away from the show feeling is that the cast gelled really well in finding that emotional honesty You'd be able to speak to this more, but I feel like there's something to be said for having, you know, you have to trust your fellow players to go there with you. Yeah, Your Anne wouldn't have worked as well without a Henry who was also being honest to Henry. Yeah. Um,
1: Well, and I was thinking about that actor earlier when I was saying some actors I know shy away from the like ugly side of a character because Ron, who played Henry... I don't think, he really doesn't. I think that's something I've learned from watching him and working with him is he's sort of fearless in embracing, he's looking for the whole person, you know, he, I think a lot of people found his Henry both compelling and also repellent. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And I know you and Zach had like so many questions to ask him after the show. So I think he really just is a master of of finding that what's the full humanity of a complicated person like that he can be sympathetic because we're seeing what's happening inside him and what's what's making him this way, but he's also a
0: monster <laughs> mm-hmm. he he did a it was it was from from the audience side it was really phenomenal seeing him you go in and from the beginning, there's an inherent like man child Mm -hmm. like this like like literally riding in on a white horse and deciding that this is what he this is what he wanted and this is this is the world that he was, you know the world was his and so he was going to choose what it did for him and watching watching him struggle with that and then choose the easy path of i guess i was right to start out and i am really like the world really is mine and and that justifies my desire to plow through like to 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 bull through any obstacles to me finding this righteous righteous place but also i think he did a really good job uh, and the show did a really good job of painting that not just in the light of selfishness but in a like you have a responsibility as the king in this time to your country to be that
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's... One of the reasons that Henry VIII as a character is so enduringly fascinating to us because he, you know, did these atrocious things, but he was also operating out of a belief system, I think, very genuinely, that we find so hard to comprehend now in the modern age. But I think... I'm glad that that came through to you, and I think that's something that Brown really embraced was like his religiousness and this this sense that was so real in the 16th century of you rule by divine right, you're, you're, you have a direct connection to God, your responsibility is to provide an heir to keep your country safe and unified. And things like not being able to have a child are a sign from the divine. <laughs> They're not just... Mm-hmm. A symbol of the fact that you have a venereal disease that hasn't been discovered yet. like um, yeah. and I think what what this play, which is by Maxwell Anderson, explores in a very interesting way is the <laughs> the way he uses his legitimate religiousness opportunistically. Mm-hmm. so he's he's operating out of that belief system and it's true, but he also can make it mean what he needs it to mean for his own purposes.
0: But but even but what I what I found really fascinating about about Ron's portrayal is that he makes he makes even that opportunistic that opportunism part of that divine mandate. Like he has mm. to be opportunistic because it is a part of you know it, it it is a part of what it means to be chosen and to to you know ruled by divine right is to is to utilize those opportunities. And watching you play with him in Anne's sort of tacit acceptance of that as a means to as a means to her ends of, of you know okay cool it, this is you you've taken away my capacity for happiness so i will accept the boon of power and the promise of shared of, of, of a shared rulership yeah um and then watching and then watching her see that fall away as she as as as, as he show, as he comes as henry comes through as henry before mm-hmm. he's, he's Henry before he is the king mm-hmm. and, and justifies that as, as what is kingly and Anne is having none of it. And it's just like,
1: yeah, there's an interesting contrast between like, she's, I think a very pragmatic sort of politically savvy person and those skills are great. But when you come up against a zealot, those skills are suddenly worthless. <laughs> um, There's also something You know, to the way that you're describing Henry that I think is very apropos, which is I'm thinking about Nixon's famous line. um, I believe if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. And there's there's a very similar way of thinking that underlines Henry's belief system.
0: It was also it was fascinating seeing that play in the seeing that play in the middle of the election i hadn't put together until just now like the that you were basically you were facing resigned compromised political pragmatism against bullish misogynistic zealotry and and, and not in not not in like boilerplate parallel terms but sort of in the in the overarching themes of the play next to the cycle that we were going through um which at the, at the time felt, you know, it felt like, okay, this is, it's an interesting commentary in this moment to, because we're having the same argument. But the perception at that time was that Anne's narrative and, and, and the cautionary tale, that we would all follow through on it and that there was a little bit more hope at that time. And then sort of watching that, watching us repeat that cycle has been, has been interesting.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating. Like, we had three performances before, or three weekends of performances before the election. And we had a, one weekend after the election. And I expected to come back sort of flush with victory and girl power and yeah. feeling really strong. And instead, I came back having uh, Donald Trump have won the Electoral College. And. I we had talked about the parallels in our rehearsal process, um, and I think Ron had identified some mm-hmm. some Trumpian parallels for him. And I was sort of amusing myself by by matching different characters, like the Duke of Norfolk, who presides over the trial. I was watching him one day in rehearsal, and I was like, "You are Paul Ryan! Like you're just standing <laughs> no. there and letting this happen." Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Cardinal Woolsey, you're John Boehner. Um, And I, so I came back and I, I was, we were doing the last weekend of performances and I asked myself, I was like, okay, so if, if Anne's Hillary in this analogy, does that make Henry Donald Trump? And then I was like, you know, no, Henry is America. (laughs) And, and that made the play so much more devastating for me in some ways to say, like she gambled she had a little moment, and then she lost mm-hmm. everything. Um, so, I and it, it. People in the audience definitely were impacted by the election, and and particularly after the election, mm-hmm. I I saw a lot of just <laughs> people looking kind of quietly horrified, and and like also sort of offering encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: do you feel like that plays into a lot of your performing, like the 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 social tone? I mean, which I think comes with reading the room a little bit. But do you find that in in the play, it, especially when when a play has something so topically relevant, um, that 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 in starts to inform, or do you do you ever and do you ever find yourself shying away from that and trying to help the play stand alone?
1: Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think I think whenever you try to subvert. A piece of writing to serve another purpose, Mm -hmm. you lose something, which is not to say like deconstructing something or, or mapping something onto a new context can't be really interesting and illuminating. Mm -hmm. But I think for the most part, my, my belief is that you want to, when you're putting on a play, you're trying to express the ideas of the playwright. Mm -hmm. But every playwright writes in a social context and every good play is expressing something sort of fundamental about humanity that's timeless, I hope, or else why are we still doing it? (laughs) Um, So for me, I think I want to look at what is this play trying to talk about Mm -hmm. and how can I, as an actor or as a director, serve that and, and craft my work to illuminate or complicate that question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I also think that sometimes I had a friend in college who who said that when he worked on a role or a scene, he he tried to find something in himself that he was working on right now that he could apply to that role. And I've been interested in that ever since that
0: mm-hmm.
1: that question of what question that's really important to me Overlaps with what's going on in this play, and how can I explore it in this context? And I think you have to be a little bit careful because you, you again, you don't want to impose something. You don't want to like distort what the scene's really about so that you can have a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that oftentimes you can find something. Like I did a a dumb Neil Simon play years ago. (laughs) It was like it was so dumb, and the character I was playing was like a dumb blonde. And I was like, I'm like so tired of this stereotype and I don't want to like contribute to it. But then I was like, well, what can I do to make this work for me? And I, I was like, well, my job is to give this dumb blonde a, like a voice and like personhood. Mm -hmm. Even if, you know, even within the confines of the script, even with who she is, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that's, that's a a person Mm -hmm. that deserves to be treated like a whole person and not like a cardboard. Mm -hmm. And so that's my job. Like, that's my mission here. I try to do that in general, is, like, give, give the character the voice that they deserve. So anyway, sometimes it's politically relevant. I mean, I think some questions are always relevant, like, you know, questions of status and power and betrayal and love <laughs> um, and giving voice to people who don't always have voices um, and revenge Mm -hmm. and fear but I think I think theater at its best teaches empathy because you're watching a variety of people and you're hopefully understanding and identifying with all of them in one way or another and that's the most (laughs) fundamental missing ingredient I think in our current political situation is the ability to empathize with others and have a a generous view of people who we don't personally know and are not like us so in that way I think all theater can be social justice promoting
0: <laughs> yeah that's our show I hope you enjoyed it you can find out more about Lizzie at applyingtoeverything.xyz/guests. Lizzie's next project is called Noah Apocalypse, and will go up August thirty-first at DC Reynolds. The website is liveartdc.com/liveartdc-presents/noah-apocalypse. slash Lizzie is also part of a podcast called Is Anyone Calling This Show? Available on iTunes. They're on hiatus right now, but you can catch up on their back catalog and learn more about the show at anyonecallingpodcast.com. You can find out more about this show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. We're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe, rate, and review the show. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. Humble Fire just released their new album, Builder, available on iTunes, Spotify, and HumbleFire.band. I highly recommend it. I'd also like to thank Yara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for my conversation with Aaron Goldbeck about Dungeons & Dragons, urban planning, and bike wizards. Talk to you then.